Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Sam. Hiya, Sam. Hiya, Don. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm just untwisting as hard as I possibly can. Oh, like the three-twisted twist. The three-twisted twist. Yes, Don is referencing a, uh, a a share that I made in a meeting. And in uh, when I was a little kid, my grandmother gave me a um, a tongue twister book, and one of the tongue twisters was there once was a twister of twists who twisted a three twisted twist. If one of those twists should happen to untwist, then the three twisted twist would untwist. And I was relating about how I'm becoming untwisted in recovery. You know, because we have this pe- peculiar twist of mind or something yeah. <laughs> like that. And uh, and that, uh, so I've got like, I'm, I'm a mini twisted soul, but uh, but as my twists have, have started to become untwisted in the whole, my three twisted twist is untwisting. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that your humor was a little twisted. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. There was a business outside of Greensboro off of uh, I-40 that I used to, I've always loved driving by there and seeing the name Twisted Paper Products. I'm <laughs> thinking like, <laughs> what are Twisted Paper Products? Lollipop sticks. Yeah, I mean, it's probably something like that, but I was envisioning, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or something. Yeah, and, and you're giving me a hard time about my humor. <laughs> I- I'm not saying that I'm not twisted. I said at the beginning of this, I am untwisting. Mm, That's true. That's true. I mean, you are the one who like goes for the obscure references like boiled owl. I don't know if that's obscure. That's right in the big book. Yeah, but you know how many people have actually read the big book? (laughs) Pull pull out your books now. (laughs) We have a guest, Don. We do have a guest. (laughs) Introduce yourself. My name is Steve... Whoops! (laughs) (laughs) Whoops! <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> hey, Steve. <laughs> Steve, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How long have you been sober? I got sober uh, April 21st, 1989. Mm-hmm. So I've been sober for 29 years. Twenty. Do you remember coming into AA the first time? I sure do. Do you remember your first meeting? Somewhat. I remember my first meeting. <laughs> what was that like? It was uh, very uh, scary. Uh, my, I came into AA into a big group, and all the men in the group surrounded me. And I was very easy to spot because I had crutches, and I had, I had jumped out of a moving vehicle in a blackout. And that same dude. night, I, I had choked one of my friends. And, um, so Not I, dude. Okay. So, yeah. So I was just coming to AA just to test the waters to see if uh, I really belonged. And uh, so the guys... Because drinking <laughs> was so much fun. Oh, it was so much fun. It was really fun. working for you. Oh, yeah, it was working for me. And, um, yeah, you know, so end of the line, mm-hmm. you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's this big group, very active group in AA, um, and uh, the group was called Crow Hill in uh, Mount Kisco, New York. And... So these guys surrounded me, and this one guy named Joe, little guy, 
he kept telling me 90 meetings in 90 days, join a group, get a sponsor. You need to get phone numbers. And he says, you're not going to chicken out on us, are you? And I, I didn't know what I said, geez, I, I don't know what I get myself into. Um, <laughs> I, all I want to do is stop drinking and you guys want me to do all this stuff. And, and I was hopeless enough where I was willing to do whatever it takes. And, uh, so Joe picked out my first sponsor. His name was Fred, a cowboy from New York. He wore a hat. He had his cigarettes in a metal pack, and he popped one out, and he'd spout something out. Usually make fun of me and hurt my feelings. Uh, very, very <laughs> sensitive. He let me know that I was a mama's boy, and I didn't like that, but he, was, he hit it on the nail on the head. And uh, so anyway, Fred was my sponsor, and, uh, and I joined this group, and I did 90 meetings in 90 days. And uh, yeah, so my first meeting, um, I really believe that God brought me there uh, because I was at the end of my rope. I, I was ready to check out, and uh, I was going to lose my employment. I was going to lose where I lived, and a guy from AA called me that morning, the day of my last drink, and I went to his house, and I've been sober ever since. Why did wow. he call you? He needed jumper cables for his car. And you knew he was in AA? <laughs> I knew he was in AA. But you weren't intending to quit drinking that day. At that well, point. I don't know what I was going to do. I was I was in real bad shape, in bad shape, and I got the phone call, and I went up to his house later in the day, and for some odd reason, I asked him to go to a meeting. I almost had to do a double take. I looked behind me. Where did that come from? And I was like, well, I'll try it. I'll give it a shot because I... I was really in bad bad way. I um I had been diagnosed as uh, manic depressive, and and I had been through all the medications. And my family has a history of mental illness as well. And uh, so, I mean, I I really felt twisted when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous. And like I said earlier, we were very wishy washy, mm -hmm. uh, on the fence about everything in my life. It was. It, you know that that hamster on the cage was going, and and the only time I would get freedom from that is when I blacked out, mm -hmm. and I drank for blackouts. And I remember having a conversation with my dad about a blackout. He's not he was not one of us. Okay. And I told him I said, Dad, I said when I drink, I'll have times where I'm still functioning and drinking, and I won't remember it. I'll be driving one of your cars, and he goes. And you drank after that? I said, Dad, I drank to do that. And he went, oh. He, says, he was wondering what, what it was about. Yeah, like, why would you do that? Yeah. That's what we do. It is. Yeah. How old were you when you, uh, when you stopped drinking? I was 21, <laughs> going on 22. And how long had you been drinking? Uh, for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. It's an early start. Yeah, I started when I was 11. Uh, having older brothers and sisters helps with that. I'm sure it does. Okay. And, and my brother was a dealer, and, uh, and I wanted to be him. So when I started drinking and drugging, it, uh, it really, I, for me, I had arrived. Wow. Yeah. An aspiration. <laughs> an aspiration. Yeah. I want to be an alcoholic. Well, I can, you know, it's bizarre, but... I remember reading this book in high school about a biography of the painter uh, Modigliani. He's Italian. Watch your language, buddy. <laughs> He's Italian. He lived in France, and he was an alcoholic. He died drunk, and I remember reading about his life, uh, 
and just loving the story because he would like pass out in the alleyway and his dealer would find him, the guy that sold his paintings, that kind of dealer. <laughs> that, things we have to clarify around right. here. <laughs> The uh, his representative in the art world that would per- notice we didn't clarify it when Steve mentioned dealer. No, <laughs> was not a painting dealer. <laughs> right. No. The other dry substance. <laughs> right. So he would find him and get him sober and give him some money and say do some more paintings and he would paint some more and then you get drunk and this, this guy would take care of him and I remember thinking oh. Man, that is the, there was something really cool about that. It's like, what am I aspiring to be a drunk that people find me in a blackout behind some bar, you know, and give me money? But it's like a, it's a romantic idea of it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. That's screwed. That's twisted. It's yeah. twisted. Yeah, my, my ideas weren't about being an artist like that, but they still were totally on par with being as dr- drunk and high as much as possible. Um, it definitely involved having an awesome balcony on which I could sit and smoke pot. This this was the life I dreamed of. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I started thinking about it uh, one time when I had I was new in AA, and, and somebody that saw me while I was drinking, they came into AA, and they went, holy crap, Steve L., <laughs> If anybody needs Alcoholics Anonymous, it's you. It's really good to see you here. Oh, oh wow. wow. How'd that make you feel? <laughs> it felt good. <laughs> yeah. It just reaffirmed I, you know, yeah. I was in the right place at that time. And, uh, that happened to me. I, there was an artist in Greensboro, and I, and I had no idea that he was in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a meeting, and he was there, and he was going, Don M., what in the world are you doing here? And he made me tell him why I quit drinking. He want, It was beautiful, really. I found out, I realized after the fact, he was like getting me to admit my alcoholism because I couldn't quit drinking was, you know, the answer. But he had to pull it out of me a little <laughs> bit. But it was a be- that's one thing that I do if I see somebody I know now is like... What in the world are you doing here? What brings you here? It's like, tell me it, about it's it. It's interesting you say that. Um, obviously, when I came in, it was easy to see that I was new. I had physical damage, <laughs> bodily damage. Um, but a guy came up to me one time. He says, so, Steve, why are you here? I said, well, I got this cast on my leg. He says, that's not why you're here. Mm-hmm. He says, he says, there's a lot more to this. And it really pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Really. I mean, it made, I was mad, but I had to think about it. That what led up to that, that was a symptom. The way that I felt, and, and I felt terrible for about the last five years of my drinking. Okay. And I would try not to drink and I would get a couple days of not drinking. And I would feel so bad not drinking. And I yeah. and and then I'd go back to the drinking and I'd stop and I stare you know I'd start and stop start and stop lots of catastrophes, and my sponsor pointed out that I was a catastrophe drinker. I drink until I have a catastrophe, and then I stop drinking, uh-huh. and then I start drinking again. And it was a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of place. Ex- exactly. There's no question about it. 
you know, so when you're in that place that that jumping off place and you think you're going to go crazy because you're drinking, but you think you're going to go crazy because you're not drinking, guess what you do? You drink. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the twisted thinking, the thinking that I still had a good time when I drank. There were no good times. It was straight to the blackout. And for me, when I blacked out, I did lots of things that were, you know, things that I didn't want to remember Mm -hmm. and things that people would call and and before cell phones that people would call the landline and they'd say, do you know what you did last night? And I say, well, I guess you're going to tell me. I hear you. It's uncanny, the persistence of the idea that my drinking was fun when... Yes, but the the fact of the matter is it was fun when I started, but it was not fun for years. Yeah. Yeah, it 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 was one of those things for me that I had an awesome time drinking. Drinking served me really well for a number of years. It really works at yeah. first. And that's ingrains it that much more that this is a solution. But it it, it started causing more problems than it seemed to be fixing because uh, it never fixed any problems. The only problem that it fixed, I would say, is that it made it so I was not so socially inept or I didn't care that I was socially inept. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it was that... Uh, the problem it fixed was consciousness. <laughs> yeah, really, there you go. It was that social lubricant. I was able to talk to people and not be so self-conscious, but, you yeah. know... That didn't work for it, it. It backfired. Yeah, the mental anguish and the physical, just ter- terrible, terrible experience, and putting up with it over and over and over again, thinking that it was a good time, that I was going to yeah. miss out if I didn't, you know, being twenty-one, uh, right? Not not many people had were coming in at twenty-one years of mm-hmm. age. I'm sure they weren't, but not, not especially in 1989. I 1989, mean. yeah. So you detoxed NAA. I did. Yeah. What was that like? Well, it was just like every other time I'd stopped. It was terrible, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that really bugged me when I was new, and I still hear it, um, is that people uh, they talk to the young people like wow, it's so great that you got in here while you were young. It's good, you know, like that there were that you had some sort of mental aptitude that you realized that you needed to come in. And I think no nobody comes into AA because they're on the wings of victory. We <laughs> we all come into AA because it's the it's the last stop. It's everything else has been tried. You've read the books, you've You've right. exercised, you've seen the psychiatrist, you've tried the nut house. That doesn't work. Yeah. And and nothing works. And you come to AA and and somehow this thing this thing works. Well, I mean, I, I came into this into these rooms defeated. Right. I was not happy to be here. No. It, it it and it frankly, it did not seem like a desirable solution. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh-uh. It was failure. I felt like yeah, I, I was a complete failure, and now I've got to go to AA, and I am a failure. And it's shameful. I felt ashamed of it. I was ashamed of being an alcoholic. I remember asking, they were asking for the topic, for the discussion, for the meeting. And I said, how do you deal with the shame of being an alcoholic? 
and the whole room burst into laughter. <laughs> and I was going, these people are weird. <laughs> twisted. <laughs> they, are, they, they are twisted. And uh, this guy said that it's right to have shame at our bad behavior, but there is no shame in being an alcoholic because an alcoholic can't control their drinking, and that's what it is. And to realize that is the opposite of you know, being something to be ashamed of. It's surrender to it and that there is another way to live by surrendering to that idea. So you don't need to have shame over being an alcoholic itself, which it was it was in my family. My my mother, if she anytime she said the word alcoholic, it was always alcoholic. You yeah. gotta whisper it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cancer. My uncle so and so, he's an alcoholic. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the other things to, to, to come back around to the fact that you both ran into somebody in the meeting who knew you mm-hmm. is of all places to not be ashamed to be an alcoholic is an AA meeting. I mean, I've heard so many people, what if somebody knows me? What if I run into somebody I know? Yeah, I felt that way. Absolutely. Well, I mean, they're there for the same reason. Yeah. And, and the thing for me that uh, not that first meeting that I went to when I was 18 years old, but the second meeting that I went to when I was 32, there was a man in that room, a guest who has been on the show, Chess, that I knew. And I saw him across the room, and I was pretty sure it was him, but I wasn't sure, and I was too scared to stay after the meeting. As soon as you know the prayer was done to close the meeting, I was out the door and in the parking lot. This was at Unity Club. And Chess came after me. And we talked in the parking lot. Knowing somebody in the room, running into somebody in the room, is absolutely one of the best things that happened to me. Yeah. I got I got to clear this up. You came in on crutches. I did. And you jumped out of a car. What Did you not know that you jumped out of a car? What, you said you jumped out in a blackout? Yeah. Yeah. You woke did you woke up and you'd broken your legs or what happened? Yeah, it was it was like kind of I what I say is like kind of a brownout and and uh peop, when someone would give me a ride and I wanted to get out of the car, I would get very belligerent when they wouldn't let me out and so <laughs> I uh, I jumped out of the car cuz they wouldn't let me out and uh That's sane. That's very sane. Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow, 10 years of that. I'm glad you're here, Steve. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm here too. And, you know, the, the misery that I felt, you know, that mental anguish and, and things were not working out for me. And I, I just knew that I was going to ride it all the way down. And, and, yeah. and there, there was a time where, um, so living up in New York, we were riding down to the Bronx and I had drank about three six packs in about a 50 minute ride. You know, so I was going for it, mm-hmm. you know, and but but it wasn't working anymore. And a guy asked me if I wanted to take a hit off of something. And I and I and I, and I hadn't done that in a long time. And I, and I thought about it and then I blacked out and I came to when we were doing nitrous hits. And, and then I realized that w- like the next day I woke up and I thought, oh, my gosh, that if I if I'm with someone who has something else, I'm going to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I'm looking for something that's gonna work. It's gotta come. It's coming from somewhere. And and uh, and I, I'll tell you that 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 the day of my last drink, I was swearing at God, this God that I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. 
I, gave, I flipped them off and I was driving through red lights and I got home and I was mad, mad that he didn't, you know, if you're going to take me out, why don't you do it? Mm, gotcha. And that's when that phone, you know, I get that phone call from my buddy. And, uh, and, and so what seemed like <laughs> the worst day of my life turned out to be the best day of my life. You know, those paradoxes in AA and, and these things that I would never talk to to anybody about being hospitalized in a psychiatric ward and taking lots of medications being then all of a sudden you come into AA and people they match you they yeah they, you know and you know you were talking you come into AA and we're ashamed of being alcoholic and but then you start talking to these people and they make you you feel better having had the the conversation with them because you identify and they identify right it's you a, can feel. I when I came in, I could feel that the these these guys knew me. It was scary. Yeah, like like it was a setup. Yeah. Well, I I was like, I was sitting in a meeting one time, and they were talking about my secret thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? This is bizarre. It's bizarre. How do they, they know? They know all about <laughs> How me. How do they know? I, it, yeah. was, it was an amazing experience, and I was going, I, you know, I've got to be in the right place. Yeah, yeah I, I, I found my tribe. They know too much. Yeah, this absolutely. is where I found the people who yeah. are like me. The, the mental inconsistencies. Why, you know, why does someone put a, a shot in you know, a milk? Why, why does someone <laughs> do that? I know why. We, I've never done that, but I could do that. My brain flip-flops around and you know if, if i don't have this thing in my life i will talk myself back into drinking there is no question about it okay so you came into aa these guys jumped you they jumped <laughs> there's no only question. in new york right <laughs> yeah. that's new york that, AA. that's a new york AA. <laughs> they were on me and they're yeah. very forceful yes so what how did you get through it how did you get through the next day like day three yeah yeah, well, first of all, I had to clean my car out because it was loaded with booze, and someone helped me do that. And uh, and I lived with my parents, and they, they drank, but not alcoholically, so I had to just <laughs> stay away from the liquor cabinet. And uh, when I'll tell you what, when, when I would hear gl- ice hit glass, I would salivate. Mm. Yeah. Ter- it was terrible. But, with um, me, it's the sound of a, of a pop top yeah. of a beer. Psst. Oh yes. man, to hear that in a meeting still just kind of oh, makes yeah. me jump a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even drink beer, canned beer or anything. I hardly ever drank beer, but to hear that pop top in a meeting, yeah, I did. Hey, hey so I, I, I was, uh, I was pretty out there when I came in, and so when they told me to get phone numbers and to call people, I hear other people talk about that it's so difficult to call people. I was like, I'm, I'm all in. I got to do this because I know I'm going to die. I knew it. So you resisted it at that first meeting. At, at first, you thought they were coming on too strong, but then you decided I, I, to surrender had, to it. Oh yeah, I had to because I was miserable. I, I mean, I was so hopeless. There was nothing that was going to work. I knew that I was going to be institutionalized my whole life. I knew it. As as much as I know my name, I knew it was going to be that way. And these people seemed happy. They told the stories of the ones I'm telling you now, but they weren't like that anymore. And they said, here's what we did. Do you want what we have? Fred always told me, he says, Steve, he says, if your way worked, you wouldn't be here. He says, why don't you try it our way? Yeah. 
Oh, I hated that the first time I heard you need to get sober somebody else's way. And I was going, oh. And consistently it proves to be true, though. But it was true. But I knew when they said that, it's like, I don't really have a choice. Because I, before I came to AA, I tried every way that I could possibly think of to be able to drink normally. <laughs> like a lady. Yeah. Um, you, hey. so you, <laughs> you mentioned the day that you quit, that you were yelling and cursing at God and flipping him off and yes. all that. What a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because seriously, I mean, the thing that hit me when you said that, and then you said, and then you got the call from that AA who was looking for jumper cables. Yeah. That's and, a prayer. And so, you know, you could feel ashamed for having such hard words to God, but you figure that God's tough enough that he could handle anything. He creates worlds. Yeah. <laughs> like, no problem. Sure, he, he can take he, your anger. <laughs> exactly. And he knew I was angry, and he yeah. knew exactly what to do at the right time. And I think that, you know, we all come into AA, and, I, and you know, God wants us to be sober. He wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Some folks decide not to do that, but I think it happens at the right time. I, I really believe that had I continued on, it wouldn't have been long. Something would have happened. I would have done something in a blackout that would have ended me up in jail, or I would have ended up in another psych ward, and um, it was at the perfect time. I was ready. It's really, it's amazing. Those are the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And they're not what we, what we expect. Right. I mean, who expects ranting and railing and shaking your fist and cursing God and, and all that, and then help shows up? Serendipity. Your home group. My home group. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, came from a group that I used to attend up in, in Somers, New York. It was called Somers Serendipity. And so that's where the name for... Ah, cool. Yeah, so I always liked that it was a Saturday morning meeting. We decided that that's a good name. I don't know if this is too personal or not. Don't have to talk about it. But what about the mental illness? Was that alcoholism, or is that also something that you struggle with and has found a way to deal with in recovery? Yeah, so I did something that no one should ever do, and, and this is what I did when I was drinking. I stopped taking all of my medications so I could drink like I wanted to. Okay. Because of and I my my siblings have all drank on their medications and it re, I mean talk about horrible experiences. So I knew I had that experience of watching them and knew that I wanted to continue drinking and so I stopped taking my medication. And so when I came into AA, I was not taking any medication, and I made a decision not to take medication while I was here, and I have not since. You know, and I don't, I don't want anybody else to think that that's not. You know, it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one of the things that I found out just within the last maybe four or five years is that um, I'm OCD. And I, I didn't know that. And I, it was a book that I read that I bought for my daughter because someone said that maybe she is. So I read the book and I cried through the whole book because it was me and it was a lot of the stuff that I struggled with, you know, while I was drinking and why I was hospitalized. And, but, but, you know, of course, you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that um, when I put booze in my body, um, something abnormal happens that I, I, I'm, I'm going to have more. Absolutely. Know, I'm going to drink as much as I can, and then when I try not to drink, I find that I can't. 
Right. So that's, you know, that's the, the, the problem uh, right there. And that's well, what alcoholism that's is. That's alcoholism, you know, and, and so for anybody who's really concerned, um, these things uh, that we talk about jumping out of cars, maybe, you know, maybe you're going to jump off the ledge of a building or, you know, whatever it looks like, driving drunk, these are all symptoms of alcoholism, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because you didn't do those exact things that you don't have it. It just comes down to those two simple facts, you know, and if you've had enough that you're going to do whatever it takes. And that's, that's where I found myself when I came to AA, that it was, that it was applied at the right time. You know, I, I got that proverbial punch in the nose where I was skidding along that bottom was coming and I got the last, it was my dad. My dad says, I'm, you, you can't work for me and you can't live here if you're going to continue to drink. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I'm going to join Alcoholics Anonymous and everything's going to be great. I was thinking, I'm 21 years old and I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got that call. It's amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, and, and, uh, and the one thing, I've always had good people, uh, good sober folks in my life. You know, we t- you hear people say, stick with the winners. And, and I had a lot of good help. I had one guy, Steve H., uh, who was diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic and got 100% disability from the Army. He, he was there 13 years sober, and he wasn't taking medication, and he was working a full-time job, and he picked me up for meetings. And, I mean, I would be out of my mind, and he would, he would ask me, Stephen, what are you eating? And I would say, I'm eating sugar this, sugar that. Mm-hmm. He says, you need to eat s- solid food. You know, you, he would, I, I really needed help. Just some practical advice yeah. at times is what we needed to hear. Like as simple as make your bed in the morning and look yeah. back and think to yourself, I did a good job. And if you didn't do a good job, make it a good job. Every day, make your bed. Every day, do the dish. You know, simple things that I could never do. Just when I was drinking, I would never do these things. Absolutely not. But I needed to start somewhere. You said a phrase that um, that is bandied about a bit, and that um, stick with the winners. Yeah, and and one of the things that uh, I think is really important to note about that phrase: Were you a winner when you were sticking around with these guys? I didn't feel like a winner. Yeah, but it doesn't matter what I felt. I I was doing what I was supposed to do. Uh-huh. I I made lots of phone calls every day. I talked to my sponsor. He worked for a septic company, and every day when he would be cleaning out the, the septic truck at the end of the day, I would go down there and spend about 45 minutes with him while he was cleaning out the truck. And he had, I, I just couldn't, the things he would say to me, I couldn't, where did he get this from? <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, people spent so much time with me. I, I was going to meetings every day. I called everybody. I, I mean, I burned a lot of people out. We called, they were probably like, oh my gosh, Steve's calling again. I was so wishy-washy, and, and uh, I just needed to talk to somebody. So the, the, the point that I want to make on that is that we'll call you a future winner at that point. Yeah. Um, so stick with the winners means that the winners need to let the people who aren't yet winners stick around them. Hey, here's something that really helped me out when I was brand new. I had a couple weeks, you know, I'm wet behind the ears and I'm in AA and I, you know, I have a sponsor, 90 meetings in 90 days. I have a home group and I'm doing this thing. And a guy 
Tommy S. comes up to me and he says, Steve, he says, you need to start working with newcomers. And I said, what? All right. Yeah. He says, he says, if you don't, Steve, you're going to die. He says, it's the heart and soul of Alcoholics Anonymous. It hasn't changed since day one. It's one alcoholic talking to another. And if you miss that, you miss the program. And he says, you got to give this thing away. And I really thought he was crazy, uh, but he was very forceful. And he made sure that I was in front of these new guys. And I sp- I've spoken with a lot of guys and I've sponsored, uh, I mean, must be over 100 people. And I'm going to tell you that they all say the same thing. They all do. And we, because we know each other so well. And, and uh, what a gift it is to be able to. What do you mean they say the same thing? So, you know, they, it, it, and it, you, you try to find out from them how hopeless they are. The guys that aren't so hopeless that they came in because their, their girlfriend said to come in or their parents or whoever, you can, you can almost see that like they're just there checking a box. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for check, box checkers. We're looking for guys that are, and, and gals that are, they're hopeless. Right. They've, they've gone through everything. Given and, up. And, and with those people, when you start talking to them about the things that people talk to you about, and you see that they know you understand the deal, but not only do you understand the deal, you know a way out. And that's the difference. We don't, we're not just talking about common problems. We're talking about common problems and common solutions. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't think it's going to work for you, which I really doubted with all my being that this thing was going to work, <laughs> I and re- still, you did it. I still did it. You know, I I told my first sponsor, Fred. By the way, Fred and I, we it lasted ninety days, and he asked. He says it's not working out, and he found another sponsor for me. But 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 in that ninety days, he says I want you to hit your knees in the morning, and I want you to hit your knees at night, and I want you to pray. And in the morning, you're going to say, "Please keep me sober," and at night, you're going to say, "Thank you." You can put other things in there if you mm-hmm. want. But you can keep it as simple as that. They, that's what my sponsor told me to do. And keep it that simple. And I said, "Well, Fred, I said uh, I, I don't believe in God." So, and he says, "Steve, he says we don't we don't care what you believe. If you want what we have, you're going to do what we do." Yeah. You want to get sober? I said, "Yeah." He says, "Then you're going to do this, right?" That that was the end of that. Your way doesn't work, so you're going to do it this way. And he had me, and I was ready. It's the guys that aren't ready. And then he trusted that you would have the experience from doing it. Yeah. It would become real to you. And, and Tommy S. said something else that was really helpful to me. He says that one day that you would become your own proof that the existence of God, you, even if you don't believe, it doesn't matter. That sooner or later, it's going to come to you. You're going to, there's going to be things in your life that happen, and there was no explanation for it. What is um, something that happened to you through working a step or something within AA where you had a realization that, oh, you could say this was a spiritual experience? Well, I, I know the, you know, I, I think for me, my spiritual experience was definitely of the educational variety. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, the whole time 
I, easy does it. I, I didn't know what easy does it was. I was trying to do everything. I was trying to trying so hard at this AA thing and I was afraid I wasn't going to get it. How do you know if you have a conscious contact with God? I asked one of my sponsors, I've had lots of sponsors and he says to me, Steve, do you think of God? And I said, yeah, I think of God. He says, that's your conscious contact. I'm like, that's too easy. (laughs) (laughs) Easy does it. Yeah. Easy does it. Simple program for complicated people. So I, I don't know if it was one thing. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go back to working with other people. There's, a, there's magic. It was magic that I felt when they talked to me, and then I was able to say the same things that they told me, I told them. And I said to them, I know this sounds really bizarre, but we know how to, how this all, this stuff works. If you plug into Alcoholics Anonymous and you do these things, you know they say rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I believe that. I think that if you plug yourself into Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a hundred percent success rate. Now I'm talking about being honest about what's going on in your head, not just showing up and taking commitments and doing these things, checking boxes, but but really telling them, you know, like when someone says, how are you doing today? If you think you're, you know, you feel like you want to drink, tell them, mm-hmm. you know, but alcoholics want to sound good sometimes. Or they might think less of me if I tell them these things. I was told to rat out my disease, tell on it. And that's, and that's as a newcomer. That's also as a middle timer and an old timer. Absolutely. And it becomes, it's even more important uh, the longer you've been sober to really share where you are. Because there is a, a feeling, kind of, I don't know if it's a human natural pressure to look good. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's, it's not alcoholism. It's alcoholism, <laughs> yep. right? It's now. It's, we have a daily reprieve based on, the, on, on our spiritual condition, which we have to get from working with other people. We can't get it any other way. If we're all self-centered about this thing, keeping it to ourselves, we're in big trouble. You know, and, and Bill and Bob knew that. And I, I, I'll, some, an observation that I've made that we are very lucky to have a lot of AA meetings, and I love, I love the AA meetings. However, I do believe that we can be very comfortable in our AA meetings, and we can, be, we can talk in our cliques, the people we like to talk mm-hmm. to, and, and it's very important that we make sure that those new people like we were when we came into AA feel very comfortable. You know, our primary purpose is not to talk about the golf or the, the whatever sport it is. It's to, that these people are coming in with fatal, a fatal disease like we have. You know, I'll, I'll share... We the, need to reach out to them. Absolutely. I, I'll yeah. tell you this. I, uh, I went to 16th Street um, one night, and I wasn't going to go there, um, but uh, Vicky was going to speak, and I hadn't heard her story. So I went to 16th Street, and I sat next to a guy by chance, right, that I sat next to this guy, and he was struggling, struggling, and he, and he wasn't ready, and, and he died on the following Monday from this disease. Mm-hmm. And so what made me think is that we see people in AA, and the AA group stays the same size, but it doesn't. People come in. People go out. Yeah. People come in. People go out. And there's, it's always different faces. You leave a meeting for a year and you come back and it's a different crowd. You got the core, 
but a lot of the people who are new are usually gone and you have new more new people and it's about the same size and so i always have to remind myself that that might be the only shot i have at that person that i'm talking to and it's that way we just don't know yeah i did a 12 step call on a list and Actually, I haven't gotten this kind of a call in a long time. I need to see if I'm still on the list for 12-step. Somebody called in on the telephone. And so I got another friend in AA, another alcoholic, and we went to visit a guy. And he, he was in bad shape sitting in his house. He was desperate. He poured out all his alcohol. And I had a concert to go to that night. Well, he needed to go to a meeting. And as we're talking to him, it became clear Okay, Don, what are you going to do here? Are you going to take this guy to a meeting or are you going to go to a concert? And I was going, I guess I'm going to the AA meeting. And I took him to a meeting and we walked in. It was a speaker meeting and there was a bunch of people sitting around before the meeting. We sat down and the row in front of us, a guy turned around and said, My, you know, I don't remember what his name was, but you know, he turned around and said, Bill. And shook his hand, and the guy lit up. It was a friend of his. That he, it was a, an acquaintance of his that he had worked with on a previous job. And they connected, and that guy felt at home. Magic. That's yeah. You said magic and spiritual experience. I mean, th- that's where it is. Hey, I'll tell you a story. I, I, uh, I was working in White Plains, New York, and there was a guy in AA I worked with, and he said, Steve... I'll give you a ride home, door to door. And I said, John, I think I'm going to take the train today. So I'm walking to the train, and I go, what is wrong with me? I mean, I had a door to door. So and I, I thought I was going to miss my train. So I'm making it up to the train platform, and I get on the train, and everybody on the train knows everybody, right? So because everybody travels together. And a guy comes, Steve, I've been smoking crack all night, and I'm out of my mind. And, and people like, oh, Steve, you know, do you know this guy? I said, oh, don't worry. I got this guy. I got this. He had seen me speak at a rehab that he was at. And so he was having a terrible time. And so I, I saw his name was Gene. And, uh, and I said, Gene, I said, I'm going to a meeting tonight. And I have a, I'm bringing a home group member with me. He says, let, I said, let me know where you live and I'll pick you up. So we picked Gene up. And the lady uh, who I picked up, she was, uh, she's handicapped um, physically and mentally. Um, but still is doing, doing 12-step work. So we took Gene to the meeting. He cried the whole way. We 12-stepped him the whole way, and she did a tremendous job. We went to the meeting. He cried the whole way, cried at the meeting. He cried when we, all the way till when we dropped him off. And he says to us, he says, you'll never know what this meant to me, that you guys were here for me. And later when I dropped Carol off at her place, the stars are out. And she says, Steve, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) This 12-step call that I was not supposed to be on that train. I was supposed to be with John getting a ride home, but God saw fit that I go, and I was there. We were there for Gene. And the bottom line is, I've not seen Gene since. And that's not the point. The point is, is that we were there to pass this message along, and I hope Gene got it. But that night, Carol and I got it. Yeah. yeah, you got it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a spiritual awakening. That's 
that is, you know, only when we can look back at these things that, you know, my first day in AA, that was, it was magic. It was that, that was God in my life that, you know, that, you know, seeing Gene and I haven't seen him since, you know, and, and, uh, it's, it's a magical way to live that we, if we stay tuned and you got to go to that meeting, even though you missed the concert, but you saw that connection. I saw that connection. And that, that's the gift. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, uh, there's something. I get to feel like the, like my life has some meaning, you know, <laughs> because wow. I can help someone else. So, so my late sponsor, Jack K, he would say stuff like, that some people come into AA and they just want to stop drinking, and that's okay. But then there are the other folks. They give this thing away, and it's similar to when a child opens a present at Christmas time and plays with the box. There's a lot of people who come into AA and they play with the box and say, I stopped drinking, and, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. It's a fantastic analogy. So, yeah. but then we in AA when we give this thing away, we play. We get this the contents. You know, the big book doesn't mince with words, and it says we know you're not going to want to miss this. We, you don't want to miss this. And I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but it says it twice, and there's a reason. And I think, you know, from watching, you know, with lots of AA meetings. It's very easy to get comfortable, and, and I never want to be so comfortable that I don't have my antenna up, and I'm not thinking about the guy who's going to walk into AA like the way I felt. You know, I think about Bob in Virginia Beach. Bob had bought a gun, and 20 years ago, I went to a meeting, and he was going to blow his brains out, and I, I thought, oh my gosh, I got so much going on at work, but I know I have to talk to this new guy. And Bob, I've sponsored Bob the whole time, you know, and Bob sponsors lots of people mm-hmm. and he belongs to a group. We are not saints in Virginia beach. And I'm sure Bob will, he'll be uh, listening to this. And, uh, we got to start that group and there's lots of people he sponsors and they sponsor people. And, you know, what, what if, what his if his life turned around, his life turned around and look at how many lives have been touched by that. Yeah. So I, I think that I was supposed to be in Virginia Beach just for that. I was there for six years. So much wisdom coming from you. I think it's attracting an owl. I see it. Watch your head. Damn, <laughs> holy smokes. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die, Daddy-O. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at the time. You can stop there, buddy boy. (laughs) If you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. We have a question from Nicole in her yoga studio. Nicole asks... How do I incorporate step 11 into my daily life? How do I incorporate step 11 sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out? Prayer and meditation is step 11. And incorporating it in my life is the way that 
I mean, how do I incorporate my life? I have to do it. I've when I was taking first started taking piano lessons, I liked the idea of playing the piano and I wanted to learn how to play the piano. So what I, I did was I started reading books about playing the piano and I started listening intently to piano music and people playing the piano and I started taking lessons and well, I needed to sit down and practice the piano if I wanted to improve or you know really become someone who can play the piano. It involved actually sitting down and playing it, not reading about it, <laughs> not thinking about it, not being around other people who were interested in it. I had to actually sit down and practice the piano. And that's what prayer and meditation is for me, is actually sitting down and being active, taking action, instead of just being up in my head about it, which is the way I like to be with, uh, with God all in my head. I like what you were saying earlier, Steve, about practical ideas of what a spiritual experience is. It's in the action. That's where it exists. And that's what's real. So the act of doing my morning prayer, doing my meditation, which for me is, I really do about 10 breaths is all I'm doing now. And I've had I've gone through a lot of phases with meditation in my recovery. There's been times where I've spent an hour, and right now I'm just doing a little bit. But it's where I'm at, and it's working for me. The thing is, by doing those things, it keeps it alive for me. Like I believe we said in the last podcast, it's like a wood stove. If there's coals in the bottom of the wood stove, I can throw a log in, and it'll light right up. And it's that way with my prayer. If I'm doing my morning prayer and my meditation, and it becomes possible for me during the day to access it at times when I need it. What about you, Steve? Repeat the question, please. How do I incorporate step 11 into my daily life? Well, like what Don was saying, that, that the only thing that we really have is right now. And, and so how do you incorporate that into your life? Well, you need to be present where you are. And so if you're at work, you need to be a good worker. If you're in AA, you need to pay attention to AA. If you're at home with your kids or your spouse or your significant other, that you need to be present wherever you are and so, so prayer for me is very easy. I pray every day on my knees in the morning and at night. The meditation part, I, I, uh, I'll go with what Chuck C. used to say, is that I have that grand central station type of mind. So, so, the, so the meditation, yeah, it just it goes and it goes. And uh, so the, I, I need to take time. If I don't tell my day what to do as far as where I'm going to spend my time, it just gets away and things morph into it. So I have to dedicate time to that if I want it to be successful, and then I have to do it. And, you know, and I'm not the best at it. You know, the one thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is that we can recite these things, and if, if I'm not practicing them, uh, then it, it does little for me. You know, I, I think that, you know, we all want to know what God's will is, and, and, uh, and I think that it's, it's pretty simple. 
It's like we need to do what's in front of us, you know, whatever that looks like, you know. And, and so when we're at work, we're not doing AA stuff. When we're at AA, we're not doing work stuff or, you know, it's, it's we just got to keep things, I guess, compartmentalized. <laughs> so um, it, it's, uh, it's progress, not perfection, as, as we know. And not to be so hard on ourselves, or I don't try not to be hard on myself when, when I'm not in that meditation mode. You know, I know that uh, God is very forgiving and very loving, and that it's going to be okay. It's constantly, for me, it's always been constantly redirecting myself back to it. I've got to turn my attention back. There's one thing for sure, and I, and I see this a lot, is that people tend to get things back in their lives and they, they cut back on meetings and that's, that's up to every individual. But I think that for me, a lot of my meditation comes from Alcoholics Anonymous and those meetings don't just happen by accident where you're on a step where it may, it forces you to think about <laughs> where you're at with that step. So for me, you know, I, I need to be an AA and I need to be in with people who are in recovery and listening to the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous, which, you know, it's the big book, it's the steps, it's the literature of AA. And uh, when I am in a meeting like that, I hear God in those meetings. And I, I feel like a weight is lifted when I leave those meetings yep. because it, 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 it releases that inner tension that I, I get from the daily working of life. The boss said this, that guy cut me off. This is going not the way I think it should. And when I come to AA and I work with new people and, and I hear God in, in the rooms that I know that I'm going to be okay if I stay close. It's like it lets the steam out of the pressure cooker right. every meeting. <laughs> so, so, and, and that is the key the, we somehow the steam has to be let out. And if we don't have that spiritual connection, we're going to drink again. Mm-hmm. Not a theory. Irritable, restless, irritable, and discontented. That's our, that's our natural state. You know? So that's why we have to do these things so that we can free up this conduit that allows God to get through to us. So it's different for everybody. But what is that thing that's getting in your way? And if you need therapy outside the rooms, take care of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good doctors out there. Absolutely. You know, uh, in the last episode, we talked about prayer. Uh, and I said something about that horrible paraphrasing that I did about, but prayer becomes like breathing. And that is you know, still true for me, that, that prayer is just a natural part of my, of my day. And so it's not just once. You know, it, I hit my knees when I, when I uh, get up in the morning, but it's throughout the day. The, uh, the meditation thing is still something that um, is elusive at times. I remembered after our last episode something that I had read a while ago, and that was stoplights at the red light. Get mindful. Breathe. Focus on your breath at the stoplight. Don't close your eyes, but uh, <laughs> focus on, the, uh, on your breath. Oh, take a moment. Yeah, it was kind of like you had said something about the bell, when Mm -hmm. the bell rings. When the light turns red, stop. Pause. I like it. You know, incorporating Step 11 into my life, I don't think I incorporate Step 11 into my life. Step 11, it incorporated itself into my life. 
by repetition, by willingness to take direction from my sponsor and trusted friends, and then by my own experience of what I get from doing it. There is something that I want to find on my phone. Hmm. Um, take so, your time. so here's, does it work? That's what you say. You come into AA, you try this racket, and you're saying, does it work? Imagine if we came into this thing and we did all these things. We were st- all the steps, we're meditating, we're helping these other people, we're miserable. What if we're miserable? But that's not, that's not what I find in AA. We find that people's thinking, it just starts, it starts getting better and our, rela- our reaction to life changes. And, you know, we start succeeding in life because we are living a sane existence versus the insane twisted existence. It's true. And, and there is no way I would be doing what I'm doing in AA and, you know, the general service work that I do and the sponsorship work and going to meetings and, and, and prayer and, and dabbling in meditation and, and all these other things that I do if it sucked. Right. The thing that I wanted to read is... Uh, a friend heard this at a speaker, and I contacted him recently. It's like, what was that thing about discipline becoming... Ri- ri-? And he sent it to me, and it's, um, discipline becomes ritual, becomes devotion. Discipline equals I do it because I have to. Ritual, I do it because it's habit. Devotion, I do it because I love to. And that's what's happened with so much of what I'm doing in AA. I did it because I had to. I had to do it someone else's way. I had to take suggestions. And then I did it because it became habitual. It, I got so habituated to it. And now I don't even think about it. It's just I do it because I love it. You Do- do it because it works. Dr. Bob called that the soldiering of the mind. Soldiering of the mind. That we do this stuff over and over and over. I like that. Oh, yeah. Steve, thanks for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. It has indeed. Thank you so much for coming. Watch out. There's that pesky owl. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Would you like to join a free anonymous online AA group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. 